0: Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.
1: When Irene Manley went to university, she studied pharmacy. She had no idea that a few years later she would become a devout Christian and move to Nepal and then Mongolia. Irene tells Linda her story. Usually when we chat to our women making waves, it's the first time I've met them. Well, the experience is a little different for me today because I've known Irene Manley for a long time because we were good friends at school. When we left school, we kept in touch over the years and I've always been interested and often downright surprised when I hear Irene's news because Irene's life hasn't followed the usual path that most of us follow because she's become a missionary and moved abroad. Irene has made a big difference to the lives of many disadvantaged people by helping them make a living. Welcome to Women Making Waves, Irene.
0: Thank you, Linda, and it's really nice to be talking together again.
1: Let's start at the beginning. When we left the school, you went off to Heriot-Watt University in Edinburgh to study pharmacy. Did you enjoy these days?
0: I would say yes and no. At the time, I enjoyed it, and that's where I met my husband, so there were some good parts about that. But then afterwards, I realised that maybe I hadn't made the best career choice for myself after all. As I got older, I realised that I had two things that had a bit of a challenge with pharmacy. First of all, I'm not really very careful. (laughs) And the other thing I have is I have extreme problems following procedures and directions, so both the problem of as you're not being very careful and not liking to follow procedures are not really the best qualifications for pharmacists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you you were a pharmacist for
0: a little while, weren't you? Yes, yes I was. And I qualified in Boots the Chemist had a lovely time, great time. And then I had two children. We moved to the Netherlands and that was the worst move of my life. That was spectacularly difficult and after that everything else was easy. We moved to the Netherlands in 1987. Bill was in the oil industry and he got transferred to the north of Holland. Now, we thought we were moving to a remote region of Turkey, so we all had our injections to go to a remote region of Turkey and ended up in the Netherlands, as you do. An easy mistake to make. Of course, of course. <laughs> Although, to be honest, a remote region of Turkey actually would have been easier. Um, we moved to a part of the Netherlands where very few foreigners lived, but everyone said, oh, everyone in the Netherlands speaks English, no problem. Well, where we were, English was the fourth language. People spoke a dialect called Gronings first, then they spoke Dutch, then they spoke German, and after that, occasionally, people might speak English. Okay. After a year and a half, we'd kind of got things going. My language was better. I'd made friends. Everything was moving along. And we got transferred to the Middle East to Dubai. I (laughs) thought I was in heaven on earth, to be honest. I, I felt just sort of woken up in a sort of a a different world because suddenly we had many people speaking english the children were a bit older they both went to kind of preschool kindergarten and i had a car i had a job that's where i worked as a pharmacist and I got in a hospital there and to be honest i'm glad i had a job because if i hadn't had a job part of the challenge at that time was certainly not getting addicted to gin and tonics by the pool <laughs> so so a job probably saved me from that but yeah. you quite enjoyed your time out
1: there how long mm-hmm. were
0: you there then we were there just over a year, and then that's part of a, another change in our lives. It was part of actually probably becoming Christian, which seems a bit odd. But part of the challenges of the Middle East is learning a bit more about other cultures, other values, and certainly there are a lot of inequalities in the Middle East. There's mm-hmm. inequalities in terms of what nationality you are, what gender you are, what religion you are. And so I started to question more things about that and about life in general anyway we, we left the middle east went back to the uk builded an mba in bradford and we went to bradford and we rented a house directly across the street from a church and i remember now the vicar coming across to sort of say i see you just moved in do you think you'd like to visit us in church mm-hmm. and us saying no 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 definitely not but over time we did and bill became a christian and we were sort of bobbling along Then we got transferred to the Netherlands again, but this time to a different part. This time to the part where everyone spoke English and life was easy. Mm -hmm. In fact, I thought I could speak Dutch, but I then found out I'd learned chronings and that was a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that was that. So in the Netherlands, that's where we really became Christians. We had a kind of bit of a crisis, started going to the international church and really had a major life change. We really reevaluated things, really tried to work out what was important, really came to faith in a meaningful way in the Netherlands, and that was a life-changer. Our kids, even now, would talk about life before mum and dad were Christians and after mum and dad were Christians. Really? I mean, I, I cringe when they say that. But clearly, our parenting became better, our values got more sorted out. And, it's really interesting. Yes. I mean, it was like moving from darkness into light. Anyway, after four years, we felt that in terms of our Christian walk, we weren't really growing as much as maybe we could. And part of that was we were doing church. We were going to home groups and Bible studies and very involved in a whole lot of the life of the church. But we had chunks of things that we didn't quite more deeply understand. And it's all a bit disjointed. So we then did two years in Bible College in berwick upon Tweed. Were you thinking
1: that you'd come out and actually work
0: in the ministry as preachers? No. no. <clears throat> At the time, we thought we'd end up back in the Middle East, doing secular work and just being there for people to talk to us and that we could explain what we believed and just be living examples. After two years, we didn't really know what we were going to do. It was a bit open-ended. But we approached a group who were involved in mission, again using your secular skills to help develop countries. And we got a very interesting first reply from them. The first reply was, we don't know what to do with Bill, but if Irene was a man, it would be all right. Wow. That's a strange thing to say. What it really was, was they understood the word pharmacist. They understood what I did. But (laughs) Bill had an oil industry background and they didn't really understand oil industry stuff. Okay. We thought no more about it. We thought, well, that's the end of that. But then later on we got another letter from them and this was from a group in nepal in Kathmandu. and when we got that letter it was like sitting on top of a roller coaster you had this feeling that if you responded to this letter everything was just going to go whoosh and change <laughs> and there would be no stopping it and i remember looking at this letter going this is going to be big we either step out or we don't and we responded to the letter positively to say, yes, we'd like to explore this area more. Usually all these things have a lot of process and very often it takes people two years to get onto the field from a first sort of contact. Well, well, we were in Kathmandu within five months. We had to raise our funding to go there because it's the kind of work you do where you're not paid to do the work, you raise your own support to go and do the work. And we thought we'll never raise the money because we don't have many church connections everyone's busy raising families, mortgages, da 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 Mm -hmm. But the money came in, and that's often a sign from God that you're meant to do something. If resources come, you say, okay, the resources are here. We need to get on and do it.
1: I think it's the same in life, isn't it? If everything suddenly is against what you're trying to do, you get the feeling that for some reason you're not really meant to do it.
0: But when things come together, you get more of a feeling that, yeah, this is right. Exactly, and that's how life has been for us very much so that basically you start to get the sense this is coming together, this is moving in this direction. So we went to Kathmandu with our two children and we were there for the next six years, basically doing all sorts of development work. Nepal is a poor country and has many, many challenges in many ways. There are challenges in terms of women's issues, poverty, health. The mission we worked with worked in all these areas. Now in 2000 again you have one of these moments and we had a communication from a group in mongolia called joint christian services and it basically said you've been nominated for the position of executive director of joint christian services in mongolia would you please prayerfully consider it you think what But the reality was our, our son was in university. Our daughter was coming to the end of her high school. We couldn't come up with any good reason for not to consider it. Mm-hmm. Although I could come up with a few now having had experience. <laughs> but, in hindsight. <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> so we, we followed through and we ended up in Mongolia in the summer of 2002. And at that point, Mongolia was very much coming out of its post communist past. Mm-hmm. It was in some ways very different from Nepal, but in other ways similar. And people have a Tibetan Buddhist background, but because of the Russian influence for 70 years, many people were atheists and say there there is no God. They were working very hard on lots of areas in terms of development of the country. The very big in free speech here because having had control for so many years, they very anti-censorship of any kind. Okay. So that, that, that's exciting. It is. And interestingly, in terms of women's issues, it's the opposite of Nepal. In Nepal, women are very disadvantaged, that basically, on the whole, women would not be educated, they would not be able to read, they would have the poorest nutrition at home, and be very much, not exactly unwanted, but basically the boys are, are the important people in Nepali life. In Mongolia, there are different gender inequities here. So in general, families would choose to educate girls rather than boys.
1: That's incredible!
0: Yeah, and the, the rationale for that is that if you have a boy, he may well be able to do a job that doesn't require much education. So he could become a construction worker, or a herder, or a driver, or a security guard. These are jobs that don't require an awful lot of academic qualifications. But people want their girls to have academic qualifications so that they have choices in jobs and choices in life.
1: Wow, that's and a so, really a real juxtaposition of most mm-hmm. countries in a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. It's the the boy who gets the education, the boy who gets the chances.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, here in terms of education, the girls get the chances, and that leads to different problems in society. As what you have is you've got a very highly educated female population and a more poorly educated male population. And so then you have challenges in terms of girls finding life partners, marriage partners that have got similar education to themselves because there are just plain aren't so many educated men to go around. Yeah. You end up with very well-educated women with good jobs married to unemployed husbands. And the unemployed husbands get resentful because they're not in control of finances or anything. Mm-hmm. And so you often end up the cycle of the men drinking a lot and domestic violence and abuse and the education disparity definitely fuels that it's not the only thing but it's it's part of what yeah fuels it. I can, well I can imagine <clears throat> and I mean I'm greatly challenged by that I mean one of the things I would say I'm here to do is just to be a, a listening ear for people be somebody from outside the culture that people can talk to because often people can't talk to people in their own culture because there are expected norms expected things and the sad question people ask me is how often does your husband hit you? And the question is not does your husband hit you, the question is how often. How often,
1: yeah. It's an expectation uh, there is it, then.
0: The, the expectation is your husband hits you. And the question is, does he hit you when he's drunk? Does he hit you once a week? Does he hit you when you burnt the dinner? Does he hit you when the kids play up? What's your life like compared to mine?
1: And are they shocked when you <laughs> say, no, that just doesn't happen in our marriage?
0: Yes, they, they just don't believe it. They, they think you're lying to them. And they say, well, that can't be true. That's not right. You know, what kind of marriage do you have when your husband doesn't hit you? Which is quite challenging. Now, the, the society is starting to pick up in that. And in the last couple of years, there's been a lot more publicity about domestic abuse. And there's been a couple of centres opened up for women. And the police have opened I I don't know what you call it, an educational facility for husbands. Now, it could have been wives as well, but generally it tends to be husbands. Mm -hmm. So if their wives do report them, then they have to do a month of re-education. But it's also semi-fuelled by alcohol abuse. In Mongolia, vodka is cheap and readily available. Um, People have hard lives. People are struggling with lots of issues. And people drink to just escape for a little bit. Just take the edge off. But one of the things I like about Mongolia is that it's a country that has a lot of hope for the future. It's a young population, they're working hard, education's improving, and people expect their children to have a better life than they do. So there's definitely a sense of better days coming. Yes. And in the time we've been in Mongolia, certainly, opportunities have changed dramatically. I mean, some are good, some are not good, and some are debatable. So things like when we were first in Mongolia, there were only a handful of private cars around. There were overcrowded, horrific buses, or people walked, or the occasional car that you could flag down as a taxi. Mm-hmm. And now there's a lot of car ownership, and many, many families will have a car, and some will have more than one car. And that's now led to total gridlock in the city. I mean, you, you used to be able to cross through road any time you wanted to because there were no cars. Now you can cross through road any time you want to because the cars are all in big traffic jams stopped.
1: Stopped. <laughs> so. It's quite nice to hear that a place like Mongolia has growth and wealth.
0: Yes. Now in terms of wealth, the cars are relatively cheap here because what we get is we get second-hand cars from Japan that would fail Japanese emission tests. (laughs) Oh, right. Yes. And there's now quite a debate about the age of cars, the condition and everything else because right now, the good thing is there's a lot of um, hybrid cars around which are better for the environment Mm -hmm. but there's still horrific air pollution and it's a big challenge. It's been cut dramatically in the last year or so because people now cannot burn raw coal. People can only burn like charcoal briquettes and that has improved the air quality dramatically. So people do
1: care about the environment. There's a movement there to make things better.
0: Two years ago, mothers protested in Parliament Square about the quality of the air for the young children. I mean, that's been the challenge we have now with potentially COVID is the country has such a high incidence of respiratory problems due to poor air quality. We've got very little COVID compared to the rest of the world, but people are terrified of COVID becoming an issue here because the hospitals wouldn't cope. You've got a huge portion of people with underlying respiratory conditions and you have overcrowding. So to try and give you a picture of Mongolia, there's sort of four Mongolias: There's summer Mongolia and winter Mongolia. And there's the countryside and the city. In the winter, we have a long, cold winter. Last week, it got down to minus 50 with wind chill minus 56. Yeah, that's that's pretty pretty cold. <laughs> today, but today it was minus 30 ish, and you have that for about two three months. In the capital city, Olandbatar, where I live, half the country's population live in the capital city. So it's a population of three million in the whole country. So It's a massive country, three times the size of France. Half of the people are living in one city. Of that half. Maybe a third are living in apartments which are on the central heating system and have hot and cold water, electricity and sewage water drainage system. The other two-thirds are living in what's called GER streets. A ger is a yurt, basically a felted tent and so two-thirds of people are living in felted tents or small wooden houses they've built themselves mainly. They're not part of the heating grid, they're not part of the water system. They're burning what they can to keep warm. A fire is not a luxury here. if a wood burner is not an optional extra.
1: No. It's a necessity. It's life and
0: death, Yeah, It's life and death. And people will burn plastics. They'll burn whatever they can to keep warm. But the move to coke briquettes has improved things quite dramatically. And again, there are big challenges. There's a huge proportion of people living in, in quite serious financial poverty. Basically, the government have like a family allowance type of thing. And there's a number of families living only on their family allowance. Mm-hmm. And in terms of food, they're living on bread and tea and nothing else. Wow. And the choices are, do we buy bread or do we buy coal? What's it going to be? We can't have both. So looping back round again, we were in Mongolia for five years, working with Joint Christian Service, doing similar work to the work in Nepal. And at the end of that time, I was asked to look after a ladies' group. And this ladies' group had been started by a Brazilian lady and a Filipino lady. And they were both leaving, and they asked me to look after the group. So I did that. And the group had been making fridge magnets of all things, as you do. (laughs) There we are. We're busy making fridge magnets of little yurts and sheep and such like in our kitchen. And from that, we started a company called Mary and Martha Mongolia. Now, Linda, when we were at school together, if someone had told me I'd be making fridge magnets in my kitchen in (laughs) outer Mongolia. I
1: know, it sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like one of the most extreme things that you could think up actually yeah
0: fairly quickly we had somebody that did hand knitting then we had a lady that painted silk scarves and our apartment is not huge by any means we've got a kitchen a living room and a bedroom the living room got turned into a office workshop shop (laughs) and people used to meet there we used to work on products we used to work on ideas and it started from that and then the next year, we rented a counter at the entrance of a supermarket. And then we had two counters. Then we had the whole of the front bit of the supermarket. Then we did an aisle of the supermarket. And gradually, we were working at how to do things, getting to know artisans, working on products. And it's been exciting and challenging. And the further away people live from the city, the harder it is to actually work on things. So, if you can imagine, we make a lot of handmade felt slippers. Now, Mongolians don't wear felt slippers. If you're in a yurt, you put your boots on when you get up in the morning, and you take your boots off when you go to bed at night. So felt slippers are kind of a new foreign introductory thing, but many people have learned how to make felt because there's obviously a lot of sheep here. If you're in the Gobi, try to understand that this foreigner expects these slippers. Let me try and give you a list. The slippers should be the same size, both feet. They should be the same color, Hmm. the same thickness maybe embroider the same design on them. But if you live in the middle of the Gobi Desert and you're making this thing that you've got no need for yourself. Yeah,
1: and you don't really understand. and No,
0: no. And you say, well, they're a pair of slippers. What's your problem, lady? (laughs) (laughs) And so it gets harder to to work on these issues the further you are away from the city. Yeah. Anyway, up until a, a year ago, we were growing year on year. So by 2019, We were working with 30 artisan groups, supporting about 200 individual artisans, and we had 25 staff and a shop in Ulaanbaatar, and then we had other odd units at different times, and all was going great guns, and then COVID hit. Yeah, anyway, I'll talk about COVID in a minute, but I'd like to talk about one of the other groups we work with. We've always got a heart for the disadvantaged, Mm. and if we can, we would... We will try and support people that just need a bit of a start because a lot of people actually have had lives that actually everything's been against them. And if we work with one group called Streamers in the Desert. and This is a group that works with girls who've either been working on the streets or have been trafficked to China mainly.
1: Have their parents mm-hmm. sold them effectively or have they been
0: captured in some way? No, they've actually probably sold themselves by mistake. Right, they haven't understood what they're getting into. Yeah. Yes, yeah. things will happen, like they've been offered a job in China, and big money, blah, 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 blah. And of course, they end up going to China, their passport's taken away from them, they end up working in a brothel with mm. no finance, no passport, no language, no nothing, and no mm-hmm. idea where they are. How awful. It, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And then, this is a shame culture, so if they do make their way back to Mongolia there's an awful lot of shame and sometimes their families won't have them back and it's quite complex. And also in terms of poverty, girls end up working in the street because they have no other choices. Anyway, this group streams in the desert. If girls choose that they want to lead a different life, they will go into like a six-month program where they do a lot of work on self-esteem, medical issues, raising children, basic life skills, managing money. And they also learned to make crafts as well. They do jewellery and they do making mitts from recycled jumpers and things. Mm-hmm. And our role is we, we buy the, the products. So basically, we can help finance the operation and keep things going. And you yes. actually
1: buy the stuff up front, don't you? So yes. they're not waiting until you've sold it before they get the money. There's no, no you no. <laughs> actually take
0: the risk, really, don't you? Yes. We take the risk, and that's why we're actually in a, a slightly challenging position now, shall we say. So basically, we're making orders at the end of 2019, expecting things to be much the same as in 2020. Mm-hmm. We will make an order, we'll pay a deposit, quality check and delivery, and then pay the balance. Then they get another deposit and make the next bit. Mm-hmm. So as COVID hit, we had financially committed to all the artisans for 2020. Yeah. People were making deliveries, we were well on the way January, February, before we realized that this is actually going to go really badly wrong yes, here. Yes. What we're in the position now is that we've now got a warehouse full of stuff and effectively no customers. And so right now, our artisans are really hurting because I mean, they've known for months that actually we would not be able to order much this year. And we've been doing a bit of fundraising to try and support people in some way as much as we can. We knew we were dependent on tourism, to a big extent and Mongolia's got a short tourist season in the summer because people don't like visiting here in the winter where you've got rubbish air quality and temperatures minus 30. Yeah. Well this year the government closed the borders in February and there have been no scheduled flights since February in the country at all.
1: Which has of course kept you (laughs) safe.
0: It's kept us safe. Mm -hmm. So that's been the good news but it's it's meant we've had no tourism at all. So um, our challenge now is just hanging in, trying to not take out any more loan than we've currently got and hope that we can actually get more customers. And I need to give a big plug to my friend Barbara. Barbara came out to Mongolia several years ago. Barbara is part of a church in Cambridge called New Life Church and she runs a Facebook group called Hand in Hand Mongolia and Mm. she sells our products here in the UK to support her project. And her project is called Winter Kits for Kids. Now, what she does is she buys from us and we ship in bulk to Barbara, which is great because right now there's no postal services from here either. And she sells in the UK and any money she makes comes back to Mongolia and she funds this Winter Kits for Kids, which is actually funding a project which buys winter clothes, school bags and things for disadvantaged families. So check her out on Facebook, hand-in-hand, hand, and if you don't come up with, with it right away, try hand-in-hand hand Mongolia, and you should find her. And can people buy directly from you, from Mary and Martha? Not easily, and the reason for that is that to export legally and properly, people have to pay us by bank transfer. It'll be between 25 and $40 to do a bank transfer. Right. Okay. So if you're trying to be one thing it's hopeless, also right now there's no post we can send things out by a couple of courier companies and that is incredibly expensive so to buy maybe a pair of slippers from me it's going to cost you something like 70 pounds for me to ship your pair of slippers but because we're sent into barbara in bulk the shipping costs are dramatically reduced so we can work that way you, you can look for us on our facebook page or online but we don't run an online shop as such so we can supply big quantities to shops or people have an organization that they think they'd like to do something but one or two things is it's really hard when you look back over your
1: life are there any changes that you think you'd make or would you do exactly the same again
0: oh gosh
1: i I don't mean the little things i mean the big decisions like the big decisions you know the the, the going to nepal the going that that was that was the key life-changing moment wasn't
0: it yeah That was the big one, going to Nepal. Oh, I would do that again in a a heartbeat. I think you need to remember in all these things, you always get a lot more than you give. I have met so many amazing people. It has been totally inspiring, the people I've met in life. So no, I would do the same again. I remember you talking to me
1: before when you first arrived there and you were talking about just going to the post office to get some things. I think it was something sent or so you wanted papers or something. And it yeah. was you had to go back countless times, queue for hours. You, you struggled with the language at first, which I'm, I'm sure you've probably got yes. over now. To me, I remember thinking at the time, I'd have got the first flight home, you know. But you, you also have a great sense of humour about it as well. And we're really laughing about what you had to do to achieve things.
0: Oh, you have to have a sense of humour. I think one of the funniest times was, I was opening a company bank account and I went to the bank and I had a piece of paper to open the company account and the girl looked at me and said, well, you need a such and such. Mm. I thought, oh, 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 oh. so off I go and get the such and such, go back again and she says, haven't you brought a... And I go, and Third time I go back to the bank with my bits, I think thinking, why didn't you just tell me the list at the beginning? Well, of course you didn't that's ask. not ask. <laughs> I didn't ask, yeah, of course I didn't ask. And and she looked at me so sympathetically this girl and said, Don't worry, we know you're stupid, but you're a foreigner and you can't help it. <laughs> it it keeps you cut down to size living in a foreign country. We're on the world's biggest game of snakes and ladders here, and I'm down the snake again. <laughs> That's great.
1: That's a good way of looking at it, actually.
0: Women Making Waves on Cambridge 105 Radio.